SETI at home, a moniker that contains the at symbol that you typically see in email addresses in a manner that was a lot more common in the late 90s and early 2000s, was initially released in mid-1999 as part of the larger SETI program, SETI standing for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. This particular facet of that larger effort, which was set up to, among other things, listen for signals from potential intelligent life forms living on other planets elsewhere in the universe, took the shape of a distributed software platform developed by the Berkeley SETI Research Center. What that meant in practice was that you could download a piece of software onto your personal computer, and that software would plug you in to the larger SETI research platform. As long as you had at least an intermittent internet signal, this software would send you chunks of data collected by mainly telescopes, like the recently collapsed Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, and your computer, while not being used by you, would donate its processing power to the larger undertaking of filtering that telescope data for signals that could not be attributed to natural noise from the universal environment or the technology used to collect those signals, the telescopes, the cables, and so on. The sheer bulk of data that needed to be worked through in this way justified the creation of this sort of project, because although it had a halfway decent budget, as alien-related projects go, SETI's main bottleneck at this point was the ability to filter and parse all the raw data it was collecting for meaning. It was almost like it had collected countless haystacks, and that was great. It was part of what they needed to do. But in order to search those haystacks for needles, they required either massive amounts of incredibly costly time on the world's limited supply of supercomputers, or another means of achieving the same end. Through this program, they were able to opt for the latter, using the world's comparably quite weak, normal, personal computers connected through the internet to assess individual chunks of data before sending the results back to the main SETI platform, where they rejoined their fellow slices of signal, rebuilding that larger data totality. SETI at Home officially ceased operations on March 31st, 2020, but during its two-decade-plus lifespan, it had about 5.2 million individual participants volunteer their spare computing power for this cause, and set a Guinness World Record for having conducted the largest computation in history, at times operating at a level 50 to 100 times that of the world's most powerful contemporary supercomputer. Although this project has been put on indefinite hiatus as of the day I'm recording this in early December 2020, so that those running the program can step back and assess what they've learned, put all the existing results together and figure out how best to move forward, and look at all the now available options in terms of distributed computation methods, the program is considered to have been a massive success both in terms of the work it was able to do with limited financial and hardware resources and in terms of the enthusiasm it garnered for the SETI cause. Awareness of and support for the search for extraterrestrial life and similar efforts measurably increased during this period. 
and the gamified aspects of this program, with users trying to outperform their peers in terms of how much processing power they could contribute to the cause, helped them achieve that goal. This impressive investment-to-outcome ratio did not go unnoticed by other scientists and scientific program managers. In 2005, the Berkeley Laboratory at the University of Washington launched Rosetta at Home, using the same at-symbol nomenclature as SETI at Home, as a distributed software project meant to help scientists evolve their proteomic knowledge and methods, which means, in essence, their understanding and large-scale study of proteins, which are vital components of most living things. In 2008, the University of Washington Center for Game Science collaborated with the university's Department of Biochemistry to develop an experimental research project called Foldit, which riffed upon the Rosetta at Home model so that, rather than simply giving the project access to their spare processing cycles for software-based experimentation with protein shapes and folds, it instead allowed and encouraged users to play a game in which they themselves tried their hand at folding proteins. Now, Rosetta at Home was not replaced by Foldit. Both are operational today, and there are over a million Rosetta at Home users and several hundred thousand Foldit players. Again, the former downloading what amounts to a screensaver on their computers, which shows them what the computer is trying in terms of protein folding when they're not using the computer for anything else, while the latter is a game that users actively play sort of like a puzzle game, in which they attempt to fold these proteins as accurately as possible, which over time helps them identify increasingly refined folding patterns for already known proteins, while also training the software so that it can better understand both how to refine existing models and how to make educated guesses about future, currently unknown, protein fold structures. What I'd like to talk about today are those protein structures, why folding matters, and a recent announcement in this space that might change a great deal about how we do this kind of science. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Nature, and it's entitled, It Will Change Everything. Deep Minds AI Makes Gigantic Leap in Solving Protein Structures. When a bunch of monomers of the same type are strung together, they form a polymer. Plastics are a type of polymer. But when the monomers vary in type, the structure they form is called a macromolecule. And this is true of both natural monomers like amino acids and glucose and synthetic monomers like tetrafluoroethylene and styrene. Protein is a type of macromolecule and is thus made up of multiple types of monomer. And it's possible to sequence a particular protein's mRNA and get back a map of its composition, a map of the amino acids that when strung together in a particular order make that specific protein. The problem is that although we might now have a list of ingredients, 
and the order in which they are added onto this protein's structure. We don't know how those pieces, when added together, look in three-dimensional space. Every piece folds and bends and corkscrews and otherwise adjusts itself into a 3D object after the larger whole is complete. And the resultant shape, in all its complex glory, is fundamental to, first, understanding its function, Second, understanding how tweaks to this folding, be they natural or triggered, can change that function. And third, how the process of folding takes place, which is important because the process of flat protein becoming a fully folded protein is of interest to our holistic understanding of proteins and their function, but also because the phases of this process may influence protein behavior, and thus the behavior of the larger structures of which these proteins are a part. In human beings and other forms of life, our DNA contains blueprints for strings of amino acids. That's what those letters A, T, C, and G stand for, if you've ever seen DNA code printed out as text. A for adenine, T for thymine, C for cytosine, and G for guanine. The arrangement of these letters in the DNA tells our RNA what sorts of proteins to manufacture by essentially telling it how to string together these four amino acids. As they're produced in this way, they start out as fairly linear chains, but then they curl up, coil up, and fold up in various ways, taking often quite globular shapes. But these shapes really do vary quite a lot, and that variety is the consequence of those smaller pieces, those amino acids from which they're constructed essentially collapsing on themselves in interesting ways post-construction. This 3D structure is important because it's not random. The shape is fundamental to the function, and you'll almost always get the same shape from the same arrangement of amino acids. And again, that shape determines, among other things, how the protein can interact, often through binding with other proteins and structures. It's also part of determining what kind of electrical charge the protein can hold and transmit where the energy is stored and how. Modern science can map out the shape proteins take after they've folded up in this way, but it's very difficult and time-consuming to do. It's also often quite imperfect, because these structures are incredibly difficult to see, and the devices that allow us to see them don't produce perfect images. They're expensive to use, and they do not work on all types of proteins. As a result of this perceptual difficulty, we've managed to sequence about 180 million proteins, but we've only managed to map, that is to figure out the 3D arrangement of, about 170,000 of those sequences. 170,000 out of 180 million that we've mapped. That sets the stage for what's known in the world of computational biology as the protein folding problem. The titular problem is that we can relatively easily map the DNA structures of proteins these days, but we cannot yet reliably predict the way those mapped proteins will fold. It's been possible for a few decades to simulate the physics involved, modeling each and every atom, including its location, electrical charge, chemical bond, and so on. You can then, within this computer-modeled version of this tiny slice of the universe, come up with a fairly good approximation of how the protein should fold based on the physics involved. Unfortunately, 
This is an incredibly computationally intensive process, as the average protein has several hundred amino acids, which means simulating, at minimum, tens of thousands of atoms, along with all of their interrelations and other variables, which for some proteins means that figuring out all possible configurations of these elements would take longer than the age of the known universe to catalog using existing computer technology. And that's for, again, a still imperfect guess at how that protein actually folds in real life. Another approach to this, then, which would theoretically require substantially less computational power, time, and money to attempt, would be to use heuristics, shortcuts based on logical assumptions, to reduce the complexity involved, and thus the amount of stuff that you have to simulate. One such approach would be to generate models based on the concept of potential energy minimization. A protein that is set up to fold will theoretically eventually come to rest at its lowest energy state. So you could optimize software to look for that kind of arrangement and maybe achieve some simulation savings because you can filter out the highest energy state forms from the list of potentials. You could also attempt to come up with a bunch of possible seemingly likely models for different protein setups so that you have a database of such models to start from when checking new protein structures. This was part of the theory underpinning the Foldit distributed modeling effort slash game that I mentioned in the intro, and another similar effort out of Stanford University called Folding at Home. Unfortunately, these concepts, though interesting and better than nothing, still left us with little in the way of accuracy and thus utility. The highest performance levels for this sort of thing, as demonstrated at the annual Critical Assessment of Techniques for Protein Structure Prediction, or CASP, competition, were in the 30-40% to 40% range, meaning the models generated using these methods, when compared to protein structures that we already know and have on hand, were only 30-40% to 40% accurate, and thus not super useful in terms of predicting new protein structures. That brings us back around to the article from Nature. And as a quick reminder, the title of that piece was It Will Change Everything. DeepMind's AI Makes Gigantic Leap in Solving Protein Structures. I've mentioned DeepMind on this show in the past, at least once in the context of its creation of AlphaGo, a piece of software that beat the world's best player of the game, Go, which brought into question the concept of human superiority when it comes to creative and strategic thinking. That game long having been thought to be our domain, because as opposed to games like chess, it wasn't considered to be as winnable using typical what we might call artificial intelligence strategies, like planning out every possible move many turns in advance, Go has many times more possible moves than chess, so it was thought that the cleverest human beings would stay on top of that particular game for a long time into the future. This turned out not to be the case, though, and further iterations of AlphaGo, after beating the best humans, have gone on to beat the original AlphaGo software, showing yet further growth in that realm of inquiry and development. DeepMind was originally founded in the UK as an artificial intelligence company, but it was bought by Google in 2014 to serve as a hub for many of their AI-related projects, 
In particular, the creation of neural network-based software, which means, basically, software that learns in some ways similarly to how human brains learn, but because it's software, it can learn far more rapidly than humans are capable of learning. In 2016, the folks at DeepMind began working on Alpha Fold, a spin-off that would focus on the protein folding problem, using their neural network development approach to digitally evolve software that would be capable of predicting the 3D shape of proteins using only their amino acid information. After four years of work, the AlphaFold team unveiled the AlphaFold 2 version of their software at the 2020 CASP competition in November and achieved an accuracy of 90%, which again is compared to the, until then, typical highest accuracy rating of 30 to 40%. Now, some caveats are important here. First, that is 90% accuracy, not 100%. So there's still fuzziness in this model, despite it being so much better than all of the other approaches that have been tried up until this point. Second, it scored that 90% on two-thirds of the proteins in the competition's global distance test, which is the part of the competition in which they assess predicted structure accuracy. So while two-thirds is great, it's also not applicable to every protein we might want to map. That said, people working in this field have been going wild over these results, many of them saying that the problem is now essentially solved, and that, in the words of Andre Lupas, an evolutionary biologist at the Max Planck Institute for Developmental Biology in Germany, who was interviewed for that Nature article, quote, this will change medicine, it will change research, it will change bioengineering, it will change everything, end quote. This enthusiasm is considered by many in this field to be well-founded. Consider that the first AlphaFold to participate in this competition back in 2018 scored just under 60% on average, which at the time startled those involved because it was substantially higher than the 40% top mark that had been accomplished previously. Two years later, this dramatic increase in performance speaks well for future improvements to this model, with some researchers saying that it's only a matter of time before they get near-perfect or even perfect estimations from this software or its descendants, an outcome that would have been nearly unthinkable just years ago. Consider, too, that some of the other teams in the 2020 CASP competition scored in the 75% range using other approaches. This implies that even if the AlphaFold 2-derived software has blind spots, there's a good chance that other methods will soon be capable of filling in those blanks, which is an excellent sign for overall broad-based development in this space. A combination of methods is likely to continue to be useful and necessary in the near future, as something like AlphaFold plus assessment and testing by labs and or the application of other models to fill in blanks and solidify fuzzy results seems to be more accurate and useful than any single one of these approaches solo. The non-computational biology industry consequences of this outcome could be expansive and vital as well. It may even shape the future of medicine as a whole in several important ways, though not necessarily in the making new medications sense of medicine, 
at least not immediately. I mentioned earlier that the form of the protein, in addition to the ingredients of which it's made, seem to determine its functionality. That means if we can get a sense of how more proteins are shaped, as well as what they're made of, we stand a far better chance of predicting what they do, even before we see them do anything in a laboratory setting. That might mean being able to see a pathogen in the wild, figuring out what its proteins do, and then knowing before anyone's even gotten sick what it would do to an infected host, while at the same time providing us the information we need to protect against and or kill it. We can kind of sort of do something like this already, using a combination of mostly lab-based techniques like cryoelectron microscopy and x-ray crystallography, but these and similar methods all require quite a bit more time, often years, to get right, and cost a great deal of money for each and every piece of each and every thing they assess. AlphaFold 2 and similar AI-based systems can significantly reduce costs and the time required to get this level of understanding. And notably, even the training of such software is substantially less costly than comparable methods of tool development. It's been estimated that, using Google Cloud resources and publicly available datasets, AlphaFold was able to get where it is from scratch for about $20,000. This in a space where most costs for this type of tool range in the millions of dollars minimum is pretty remarkable. This approach to protein modeling could also allow scientists to develop treatments for novel and rare conditions, and even invent new protein structures to help solve problems related to pollution and climate change. Some rare diseases are already known or thought to be the consequence of one misfolded protein, and learning more about how that works and what we're looking for could allow for the prevention of such misfolds and potentially refolding or replacing misfolded proteins at some point in the future. And the field of synthetic biology is still in its infancy, but it's thought that if we can get good at making biological things from scratch, we'll be able to create, for instance, algae that soaks up a whole lot of CO2 from the atmosphere powered only by photosynthesis by the sun, and maybe in turn produces food or eco-friendly fuel. Basically, this knowledge could help us better understand biology as a whole, which very much includes our own bodies and how they fit together and function. And that's the sort of knowledge that tends to lead to decades of new discoveries, because we can suddenly see a lot further and clearer than was previously possible while at the same time we gain access to a number of new tools that may allow us to interact with more of the biological world safely. There's a chance that this will all end up being a flash in the pan that, because of this tool's imperfections, isn't as useful as we initially thought. It does sound like this industry, more broadly, is close to reaching similarly impressive outcomes via a variety of approaches, though. So rather than the whole thing balancing on the accomplishments of just one group, supported by just one company, there are numerous individuals, groups, funders, governments, institutions, and other entities involved in this work. And even if only a few of the early moonshot attempts produce anything of true significance, we likely have a lot of very interesting and hopefully beneficial outcomes from a lot of other efforts to look forward to in the near future as well.
The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. The concept underpinning this book, which is nonfiction, is that a lot of what we think of as racism is actually maybe better explored through the lens of caste systems. And that's caste systems as we see in places like India, or that we have seen and still continue to see in some forms in India, but that we've also seen throughout human society throughout history. And what this book does is explores that concept of caste in its many different shapes and sizes and historical appearances. But then it also lends the reader a lens through which they can view a lot of the inequities that they see in their own lives, their own past experiences, but also within their country, within their culture, or that they see when looking across the border into other countries and looking at other cultures. This book is a very compelling work with some very interesting ideas, and it does help you see some of these things that you can already see, most likely, and some things that you probably didn't see in a different light, in a different way, organized in a slightly different fashion, which to me was very useful and enlightening. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Cast, C-A-S-T-E, by Isabel Wilkerson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can find a new project of mine, a daily newsletter that curates the news at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.